This is the first in a seven-part series of talks by Joel on devotional practices, titled Devotion Number One, Verbal Prayer, recorded October 16, 2005, at the Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Castle Rock, Washington. The Hindu tradition distinguishes two main paths or approaches to enlightenment or gnosis. And the first one is janana, which is often translated as knowledge, the path of knowledge or truth. And the second one is bhakti, which is the path of love and devotion. And although other traditions don't use these two terms, bhakti and janani, they all have, at least implicit in their various kinds of practices, these two poles, we might actually call them. So uh, this is not just specific to the Indian or Hindu tradition, although they have this language, a very precise way of talking about it. And the difference really stems from the motivation of the seekers. So a Janani is motivated by intense curiosity. And we can even go far as to say a longing for truth, a thirst for truth. Who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What is all this? It's a great mystery. And if we stop for a moment and ponder that, we realize we really don't know. What is this all about? And if that question lodges in your soul, so to speak, and starts burning there, then you are a true janani. You're driven to find that answer. The bhakti is motivated by a longing and love for God. So it seems to be quite different. But actually... Love and truth are two aspects of the same ultimate reality. Because what enlightenment or gnosis discloses is that there is no separate self. That the reality is a reality of selflessness. And from the way the Buddhists talk about it, it's not just selflessness in terms of the self you think you are, but it's the selflessness of everything, of all objects and things that we assume have some sort of core self, not a self in the, in the sense of an animated ego self, but some sort of essence or core or whatever. And what the Buddhists say, if you examine it, if you really look at it, you'll find they're all empty of any self-existence. So in that sense, this selflessness is a universal selflessness. But then love, true love, is selfless. And we all know this from our own experience. Uh, the more you love someone, the more selfless you become, at least in relation to that person. At the very least, you start putting their interests on a par with yours. And if you really have... Uh, love, let's say, for a child, you'll put their interests above yours. So we could say, really, that love is the truth in action. 
Love is the truth of this ultimate non-dual reality because there is no duality between I and other, self and world, subject and object. So the action of that reality, the movement of that reality is selfless. It's love. Not necessarily the emotional quality of love uh, or the emotional quality that we associate with love in our language, but all movement from a mystical point of view is, if we want to put it this way, motivated by love. And certainly Bhaktis would put it that way. The great Christian mystic Dionysius the Arapagate writes, Divine love is ecstatic, and we must dare to say for the sake of truth that the very cause of the universe himself becomes, as it were, transported out of himself in his providence for all beings, and persuaded by goodness and affection and love, is drawn from his height above to dwell within all things through his super-essential and ecstatic power in which he yet abides within himself. This is sort of bhakti theology. (laughs) But what he's saying is, if we want to use a simpler image, that the whole universe is animated by love. If we want to ask the question, what is the motive of the universe? The motive is love. In fact, that's exactly what Muhammad asked God. When people ask me, why did you create this? He said, tell them that I was a hidden treasure that loved and longed, slashed, it's one word in Arabic, that loved to be known. So that's why all this was created, so the hidden treasure could be known. So it's this river of love just flowing through everything, flowing through creation, flowing endlessly. And by the way, it's not a little narrow, bourgeois, sentimental, claptrap love the way we're used to from Hollywood movies. It's that ecstatic, creative love that creates epics and dramas and spectacles. But under delusion, we experience this love as an absence because delusion veils its true nature from us so there's something missing there isn't anything really missing it seems to be something missing so that love that is the creative love of the universe we experience as a longing for what's missing that happiness it's a longing of the heart so We don't know it really, but this longing that we have for the divine is God's love for us. That is it. There's no difference. And that's one of the things that Bhakti discovers. So this longing of the heart is the Bhakti's motivation. Here's what uh, Nandamoyamai says. By the keen sense of want of the divine presence, a desperate yearning ensues, and this will open the way to self-realization. So, the goal of the path of Janana and the path of Bhakti is the same. There's no difference where they end up. The goal is the realization of this non-dual reality. And this is what um, Ramana Maharshi says. Whatever the means, 
The destruction of the sense of I and mine is the goal. And as these are interdependent, the destruction of either of them causes the destruction of the other. Therefore, in order to achieve the state of silence, which is beyond thought and word, either the path of knowledge, which removes the sense of I, or the path of devotion, which removes the sense of mine, will suffice. So there is no doubt that the end of the paths of devotion and knowledge is one and the same. In fact, there's no such thing as a path that has only janana or only bhakti. So it's better to think of them as poles of the path, not as separate paths, but as different approaches. So, as Ramana indicated, the janani proceeds through an inquiry into the nature of this self, this I. And through this inquiry and analysis and uh, investigation comes to a direct realization it doesn't exist. That's what Ramana meant when he said it removes the sense of I. It's removed because you go look for it and you can't find it and you realize it's illusion, it isn't there. So that's what removes it. The bhakti proceeds through a process of giving up, of surrender. Surrendering everything to God. Everything to God until there's nothing left of mine. And that includes the I that is the owner of all these things as well. You give up everything else, and then finally there's nothing left but yourself, so you give that up too. And that's why Ramana said that the path of bhakti removes the sense of mine. So when that's removed, when that sense of I is removed, then the whole house of cards collapses. Because this duality depends on both sides, I and other self and world subject and object. There's a distinction between them, but if you have no sense of self, then there's nothing on that side of the distinction to hold it up, and it collapses. Narada, who is the author of perhaps the most famous bhakti work in the Hindu tradition, the Bhakti Sutras, defines this kind of devotion as whole-souled devotion. Whole as in complete, complete soul devotion. And he says, whole-souled devotion means giving up every other refuge and taking refuge in God alone. So we might say that an analogy for the Janana approach is that of a scientist or a detective investigating. The analogy for the bhakti approach is a love affair. And that's why so much of bhakti writing is uh, put in those terms. Falling in love with God instead of falling in love with a human being. But in many ways, as we'll see, the dynamics of that relationship are very similar. We have to keep in mind, though, that this is an old-fashioned love affair. It's more of the kind of love affair you'd read about in the Arthurian legends, you know, the, the knight who falls in love with his lady and is willing to do anything to win her love. 
in modern times, we have this idea love affairs, a negotiation, you know, between two equals. So I'll give you a little bit, but I want a little bit back. I want to make sure I get mine, you know, and we almost have a contractual idea of how we're going to enter into relationships, which I'm not knocking as a practical matter in dealing with other human beings. But with the divine, as we're going to see, there can be no negotiation. I mean, you might try, and most do for a while, but the idea is a total surrender. Total surrender. So, historically, most seekers have taken the bhakti approach. But many seekers today, especially educated seekers in our world, find two main obstacles to walking this path. One is philosophical, we could say, and one is psychological. And philosophically, modern people who are interested in mysticism, who have done a little exploring, know that the god of the mystics anyway is not some big daddy or mommy in the sky, but that it's actually your true identity. Meister Eckhart said this very well. He's a great Christian mystic. Some people think that they will see God as if he were standing there and they here. It is not so. God and I, we are one. So to a sophisticated seeker who understands this, at least intellectually, it seems like devoting yourself to some form of God as an object just perpetuates the delusion of duality. But the truth of the matter is, Jananis suffer from the same delusion, but it's more subtle. Jananis imagine that they're going to attain enlightenment. And implicit in that is the idea that enlightenment is something other than what is here and now. Say, I'm going to work real hard, and someday I'm going to attain this state or this quality of consciousness, or however you think of it, and I'm going to be enlightened. But that's just as dualistic. It's just as false. So Jananis don't escape this. It's just more subtle. So they think they've escaped it. But the truth of the matter is, as long as we're in delusion, we live in duality. That's the nature of delusion. If you didn't live in delusion, you wouldn't experience duality. And you can't think your way out of it. So it's an artificial philosophical problem, let's put it that way. Psychologically, especially people who are well-educated, clever people, are usually full of a lot of pride. Pride in their own abilities. And so they tend to think that they can walk a spiritual path by their own efforts alone. They don't need anybody else They don't need teachers. They don't need a tradition. They don't need any of that stuff. And this pride is based on a fear. And the fear is that somehow they're going to get taken advantage of, get ripped off, be made to look foolish. Maybe even they're going to be killed if they, you know, succumbed to some teacher and joined a a Jim Jones cult and ended up committing suicide or something. And the uh, sad thing about this is that that's exactly what the spiritual path is about. 
It's about stripping you of absolutely everything, including yourself, including your life, actually. Not in the sense of committing suicide, bodily suicide. And that applies whether you're a Janani or a Bhakti. Here's something Chogyam Trungpa said, and he was a Tibetan Buddhist and represents a strong Janana tradition. Since the problem is that we tend to seek an easy and painless answer, but this kind of solution does not apply to the spiritual path. Once we commit ourselves to the spiritual path, it is very painful and we are in for it. We have committed ourselves to the pain of exposing ourselves, of taking off our clothes, our skin, nerves, heart, brains, until we are exposed to the universe. Nothing will be left. It will be terrible, excruciating, but that is the way it is. I hesitate to read you this kind of passage, but now I've got you as a captive audience up here, and most of you can't just leave, so it's too late. The train has left the station, and you're on board. (laughs) So even a Janani has to surrender everything. That is the last principle, attention, commitment, detachment, and surrender. And the final principle of surrender is everything which brings us back to the reason that historically, at least, the bhakti path is the one that has been taken by the majority of uh, seekers throughout history. And this is well summed up by something that Krishna tells Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita. He says, Greater is the toil of those whose minds are set on the formless, For the path of the formless is hard for mortals to attain. So he's talking about the formless truth, we could say. Because once you start investigating mysticism right away, you're going to run into the fact that the truth has no form, no shape, no color. It's beyond thought, imagination, and all that. But Krishna goes on to say, but those for whom I, Krishna, and the end supreme, who surrender all their works to me and who meditate on my form with pure love and adore me, these I very soon deliver from the ocean of death because they have set their hearts on me. So he's really saying it's much easier to be a bhakti. It's much easier to have a form of the divine to focus on when it comes down to applying the four principles, it's easier for a bhakti, generally. And we can see this just in comparing it, again, to a human relationship of falling in love. You know, in a human relationship, when you're first in love, I'm talking about the first days and weeks, you know, when we're in the full flush of it. When it comes to paying attention, you have no trouble paying attention to your lover, In fact, if you're separated during the day, you can't think about anything else. Your mind just flies back to your beloved. The Johnny has to struggle to keep mindful, to keep the attention free. But for a a lover, 
sometimes the struggle is the other way around, to pull your attention away from your beloved so you can do your work, you know. Three days into a relationship, your mind is elsewhere. You find it hard to concentrate on your work. Making a commitment. When you're in love, you don't have any trouble keeping dates with your beloved. Boy, if you got a date at 7 o'clock to, you know, meet them in a restaurant, and you're there early. So keeping a date with God in terms of your practice, you have no trouble showing up for your practice. You're eager to show up for your practice. The poor Janani has to, you know, get up in the morning and exercise self-discipline and sit down on that couch, and I mean, on that pillow, and, you know, sometimes ends up on the couch. <laughs> oh, I can't do it today. Detachment. When you are in love with someone in the first days, you don't want anybody else. You don't have any problem with uh, a mind lusting after others. That comes later. (laughs) When we fall in love with someone else, a human being, we find it easy to surrender to them, to surrender our interests for their sake and so forth. When you're in love with somebody, oh, whatever they want. They want to go to uh, opera? Oh, I love opera. You might hate opera, but oh, I love opera. Let's go to opera. Whatever they want, you're willing to do. But what does it mean to surrender to some formless, abstract truth? For most people, it doesn't really mean much. So in detail, in terms of walking the path, to fall in love with God makes all of it easier, whatever your practices. And that's why most people have become uh, bhaktis. So, here's what the Christian author of The Cloud of Unknowing says, and he just sums up the whole principle of the bhakti path very simply. For this is the way of all real love. The lover will utterly and completely despoil himself of everything, even his very self, because of the one he loves. So that's the whole idea of bhakti in a nutshell, right there. And when we despoil ourselves of everything, including our very self, then the duality between self and world vanishes. That's the revelation of the non-dual reality that is the end of both approaches. So the first obstacle that seekers run into, whether they're bhaktis or jananis, usually is an attachment to the hope that happiness can be attained from worldly things. And so the way that almost all mystical teachings recommend addressing this is to turn directly and look at the impermanence of all this stuff, including yourself. To convince yourself from your own experience that it's never going to be possible to get true abiding happiness by running after worldly things. This isn't any uh, critique of worldly things, that they're bad or evil or something like that. It's just a fact. It's just the fact that it's all impermanent and therefore grasping at it isn't going to work. It's futile. And that's what contemplating impermanence teaches us. The futility of 
finding abiding happiness in this constant pursuit of worldly things. So that's what leads us to renounce this notion, this conviction, the conviction we have, not an intellectual conviction, that somehow we're going to be able to get happiness through getting the right job, the right mate, the right car, the right career, whatever it is. Someday my prince will come, my princess will come, and we'll ride off into the sunset. It ain't going to happen. That's just a fact. So that's what convinces us to look elsewhere, when we really recognize that futility. Now, if you're a bhakti, the elsewhere you're looking is to some form of the divine. Here's how Narada describes it. A bhakta's renunciation means that his whole soul goes towards God, and whatever militates against love for God, he rejects. And you'll find it's the same in all traditions. Here's Mir Valudin, a Sufi master. The erasing from the heart its love for the ephemeral world and its worry over griefs and sorrows, and establishing in their place an ardent love for God alone. That's what constitutes the Sufi path. That's a whole description in a nutshell of what the Sufi path is all about. The Jewish Torah says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. A lot of people think that's an original saying of Jesus. It's not an original saying of Jesus. It's a commandment in the Torah. And Jesus just came along and said, that's the greatest commandment. That's basically it. There's another commandment that goes along with it. The second commandment is you'll love your neighbor as yourself. And for a bhakti, that's it. That's the whole path right there. You don't need anything else. Everything else in the Bible is a footnote to that. Nothing else you need if you're a bhakti. So, from a more psychological point of view, we can see what's happening here. The practice of devotion takes this natural longing we have for happiness. We're all born with. And, first of all, weans us from the hope that we're going to find happiness in worldly pursuits and then takes the energy of that longing for happiness, which is scattered through all these different desires we have for all these different objects out there, relationships, wealth, fame, whatever it is, and concentrates it like a laser beam and focuses it on one thing, and that is God. But... The problem is, there's a catch if you want to be a bhakti. There's a big catch. And that is, a janani can begin a spiritual path just out of simple curiosity. Who am I? That one question could start you off on a janana path. You don't have to believe in nothing. You don't have to have any prior experience. You don't have to have nothing. But you can't really start a bhakti path until you've had an initiation. And by initiation, I don't mean you went through some ritual where some guru blessed you and 
you know, put a necklace around your neck or something like that. I mean, that might be your initiation, but that's just the outward form. That's not really going to do it. What I mean is an inner experience of the divine in some form. Because you can't love something with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might you've never experienced. You just can't do it. So if you haven't been initiated, you don't really even know what bhaktis are talking about. So this is a big drawback to a bhakti path. And we could say in a certain sense, in a relative sense, you can choose to be a janani, but you can't choose to be a bhakti. And you can't force this experience, this initiation. It comes by grace. You can't make it happen. So what does this experience look like? It can vary in many ways. Uh, In the Hindu tradition, it's quite common to get a glimpse of the divine through a human teacher, a guru. And gurus are often considered incarnations or manifestations of the divine. Christians usually get it in the form of a personal experience of the Christ. A born-again Christian has experienced Christ in their heart. This isn't a deception. It's not like Christians who have had this experience are making it up. It's not like it's an hallucination. It's a true spiritual experience and a true experience of the divine. From a mystic's point of view, one of the problems with uh, the way Christians look at it is, first of all, they look at it as exclusive. Hindus tend to be a lot more sophisticated about that. That They recognize the divine can appear in many forms. Just because my guru is Ramana Maharshi, I don't have to diss your guru because they all can be manifestations of the divine. So fundamentalist Christians, anyway, tend to be rather exclusive about that, which makes them obnoxious. And then the other thing is, they think that this is the end of the path and don't realize it's the first step on the path. It's the beginning of the path. It could be uh, an experience of an archetype that appears in a vision or a dream. That you recognize the numinous quality of it. You recognize there's something divine about it. Maybe it even gives you some instruction or some teaching or something like that. But you wake up from it and you know you've glimpsed a reality that is beyond this reality. When I had that Athena dream, I woke up and this reality seemed less real. It could be just the experience of a kind of presence. And this is really quite common across traditions. A loving presence or an awesome presence, an overpowering presence. Here's Simone Weil describing her first encounter with the divine. And she grew up in a household, let me preface this, in an atheistic household. Her her family were Jews by culture, but they were not observant Jews in any sense. And uh, as a young woman, she had been involved in radical politics. She was a leftist and she'd gone to Spain to fight on the on the side of the Republicans against the fascists and so forth. So she was very active, very politically involved and all that. She had no interest whatsoever in religious kinds of stuff. She says, In a moment of intense physical suffering, 
I felt, without being in any way prepared for, for I had never read the mystical writers, a presence more personal, more certain, more real than that of a human being, though inaccessible to the senses and the imagination. And if you read through the literature, as I said, you'll find this is really quite common. So then we might ask, how is it possible to experience God in form, whatever the form it might be? And in fact, the truth is, we should really be asking, how come we don't experience everything as a form of God? Because that, from a mystic's point of view, is the reality. Everything is a form of God already. It's just that it's veiled to us. Here's what Ananda Mayamai says. He alone is. Therefore, he himself speaks to himself for the sake of his own revelation. This cosmos is God speaking to God. And again, you'll find this in all mystical traditions. We did a retreat up here, what was it, last year? About listening to the stones, based on a teaching of Meister Eckhart, who said, the stone speaks of God as surely as my mouth. It's the exact same idea. Ibn Arabi said, all this as a divine self-disclosure. The Kabbalists say that all this form is the garment of God. So you look around and you're seeing, you know, God in all these different masquerade costumes. Not just as people, but as trees and rocks and stars and stones and the whole thing. The Quran says, There is nothing that does not glorify him in praise, but you do not understand their glorification. But sometimes we do. Whether we're prepared for or not even, sometimes a particular form just becomes transparent for us. The veil lifts for a moment and we see that divinity shining behind it, shining through it. So anything could reveal the divine. Anything could. And if you look at the history of religions, in fact, everything has. I mean, that's why there are sacred places and there are sacred trees and there are sacred rocks and, you know, different cultures and traditions have all these different places where they've seen that divinity peeking through. And people from different cultures or different backgrounds or different places, you know, they don't always see what the other person saw, which sometimes, again, causes conflicts because... People think that, oh, my mountain is the exclusive holy mountain. If you don't see it, then there's something wrong with you. But the truth is all mountains are holy, and some people see some mountains holy, and some people see another mountain. So it's objectively true that everything is a manifestation of the divine, and it's also subjectively true that under delusion, we don't see it except occasionally little glimpses here and there, like a little shade going up and down here and there. 
So it's not a superstition or it's not some inferior form of religion to recognize something as being a form of the divine, even though we maybe know already because we've read it and so forth that ultimately divinity is without form. But in any case, as I said before, if you have never had such a glimpse or such an experience, there's nothing you can do about it in terms of making it happen. It does come by grace. And having said that, I should say that that overstates the case, though. It's not quite that clear-cut. And again, we can get a good idea of this by going back to the analogy of falling in love with a human being. I think most of you have had the experience that you cannot decide to fall in love. How many of you have gone out with somebody, and when you've been single, and... All your friends and relatives said, oh, what a wonderful person for you. Oh, this person's so considerate and, and they're mature and they're, they really care about you and all these creeps have been going out with this person. It's just wonderful. Why don't you marry this guy? Why don't you marry this woman? Why don't you settle down? And you know, you know it's true. Yes, they're a wonderful person, but it ain't there. Has any of you had that experience? You can't help it. You can also have the opposite experience with, you know, humans. You can fall in love with the creeps, too. <laughs> but, uh, and then you can't help that either, can you? So, in that sense, you can't make yourself fall in love. But if you want to fall in love with somebody, then you can take some steps to increase the probability that it will happen. If you just sit around your house moping, chances are it's not going to happen. It's possible, you know, the electric meter reader may come by and you may strike up a conversation and that's the one. But I'm sure that has happened. It's a non-zero probability that it could happen. But if you do want to fall in love with somebody, you know, get out of the house Go places where you're likely to meet compatible people, you know, whatever you're interested in. You're interested in art, to hang out at art galleries. You go places where you might meet somebody suitable. So where then can you find God? Well, here's what God tells Muhammad. Neither my earth nor my heaven can encompass me, yet the heart of my adorer contains me. All the earth and all the heavens and all the stars and nowadays we'd say all the galaxies all out to the redshift radiation out there at the edges of everything, which isn't an edge. All that doesn't contain God, but the heart of the devotee contains God. Here's what the Christian mystic St. Ephraim of Syria has to say. Here within you are the riches of heaven if you desire them. Enter within yourself and remain in your heart, for there is God. Here's Lali Shwari. She was a great Hindu mystic. Meditate on him. He lives in your heart. Don't look for him here and there wondering where is God. Even when we get a glimpse of the divine in some outer form, like we meet a guru, Ramana Maharshi, and we feel we're in the presence of the divine, 
It's the God in the heart that is responding. That's why it feels so strange to the ego. It's not an ego thing. That's why we feel it as a response that isn't something we decide in our minds. And truly, it's a response of God to God, as Nanamoyamai said. It's God speaking to God, and you're just the witness. So it always comes back here to the heart. If you want to get a glimpse, if you want to have an initiation, if you want some experience, the place to look is in the heart. But then there's a big problem here because we have to ask, what heart are these mystics talking about? And if you read through uh, any mystical literature, but particularly the bhakti literature, it can be really confusing. Because the meaning of heart keeps shifting with the context, how it's used. So you have to depend on the context, but you have to recognize that the same mystic can be talking about the heart and the meaning can shift. Ramana Maharshi is a good example of that. At one point, he's talking about focusing on the heart and he starts pointing to his chest and describing what seems to be a physical thing. And then he flips over and he says, but the heart isn't there. The heart contains everything. How can the heart be in any physical location? Stuff like that. And you wonder what he's talking about. You just have to watch for this, the meaning shifts. And for our purposes, we could identify at least four different meanings to look for when we're reading through these texts. So let's just go through them quickly. And let me point out again, I think I said this already, this is the language of bhaktis. It's a poetic language. Don't create a metaphysic out of this. There's no metaphysic here. It's just a way of talking that can describe and guide us to certain experiences. And that's the only use it has. So the first one is the physical heart. That's the most obvious one. And mystics will usually be referring to the physical heart when they're talking about the heart as a focus of concentration. And particularly when they're giving instructions for a meditative practice or a contemplative prayer practice or something like that. And it'll be pretty obvious they're talking about the physical heart. Then the next level, we could say, is the emotional heart. The place, quote unquote, not a physical place, but the place where we experience emotions. And so they could be self-centered emotions, negative emotions, as when Jesus says, From the heart come evil intentions, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false testimonies, blasphemies. These are what defile a man. But the heart can also be the seat of our spiritual emotions, that love and longing. So Lali Shori says, O Lali, only the heart in which the flame of God has been kindled is clean and pure. So we experience this love and longing in our hearts. And as we're going to get into later in the retreat, one of the processes that happens on a bhakti path is the purification of the emotional heart of these self-centered emotions. And really the purification entails the liberation of that energy that gets fed into that love and longing. And the more that happens and the less content is left in the emotional heart, the more the emotional heart 
becomes or opens up into that we could call the spiritual heart, which is the next level. And the spiritual heart is a space of consciousness, of clarity. That's where we can experience the form of the divine. We get rid of all the clutter, so to speak, and we get down there. And that's where we can really experience this. Here's uh, the Christian mystic Towler. He writes of God. He is far above every outward thing and every thought and is found only where thou hidest thyself in the secret place of thy heart, in the quiet solitude where no word is spoken, where is neither creature nor image nor fancy. So again, see, it's a different use of heart. This is the, a deeper heart, we might say. And finally, when this spiritual heart is completely purified of all objects, all images, all forms whatsoever, that opens up into the radiant heart, which is just another name for consciousness itself, that ultimate non-dual reality, that mystery, the God that is without form, the formless as Krishna calls it. Ramana Maharshi says, Call it by any name, God, self, the heart, or the seat of consciousness. It is all the same. The point to be grasped is this. That heart means the core of one's being, the center, without which there is nothing whatever. So this is a kind of a hierarchy of meanings for heart here. And to sum it all up, we could say that the bhakti path is a journey through these hearts, going deeper and deeper into these hearts. So we begin with the physical heart, and the physical heart opens up into the emotional heart, and the emotional heart opens up into the spiritual heart, and the spiritual heart opens up into the radiant heart, and the end of the bhakti path is discovering the radiant heart which contains all others. So then, one of the big obstacles that would-be bhaktis face is called, particularly in the Abrahamic traditions, the hardened heart. Here's uh, what the Quran says. Alas for those whose hearts have been hardened against the remembrance of God. So what does this mean and how does it happen? We said before, everybody, everybody is born with a native intuitive longing for happiness. But when we direct this longing for happiness to things, worldly things, objects, people, stuff like that, we are bound to suffer. And as we grow up, we learn a subtle lesson, some of us depending on your conditioning, and some of us learn it to a greater or lesser degree. If you give this longing free reign, you're going to be disappointed. If you want things too much, then when you can't have them or when you lose them, the greater your suffering is going to be. So during the course of growing up, a lot of people conclude that, well, this longing for happiness, for true happiness, real happiness, real contentment, is just naive. 
It's childish. And so a lot of people, as they get older, more and more give up that dream of ever finding real happiness, and they settle for less. So you say, well, I won't be ultimately happy, but if I can be comfortable, if I can just avoid suffering, a lot of people's life becomes not so much seeking happiness, but just avoiding any more suffering. And this becomes an outward strategy in life. People box themselves in. They stop taking any chances. They don't want to go anyplace. They don't want to try anything new. And that's the outer way to try to keep out the suffering. But inwardly, we also start closing down the heart. We start suppressing that feeling of longing. Here it comes again. No, no. The last time I did this, oh my God, the suffering I had when my marriage broke up. And we remember we wanted that person so badly in the beginning. And we start to shut down, suppress that longing. And the physical outward sign is literally constricting the chest around the heart, which is why it's called the hardened heart. What we fail to realize when we do this is that very longing, that very longing is a call from our true self to wake up, come home. And we're more and more shutting off that call until we lose it altogether. So if you want to be a bhakti, we have to start listening again. We have to start opening our hearts again. That's what's going to lead us back to the source. You cannot be a bhakti with a hardened heart. And I keep emphasizing uh, bhaktis here. It's the same thing is true of jananis, although it doesn't usually show up in a janana path until much later. And then you begin to realize how much of your suffering is because you're so self-centered. And then you begin to open up, and it's usually to other people, not to some form of the divine. But a bhakti, if you want to be a bhakti, that's something you have to deal with right off the bat. Otherwise, you're not going to get the first base. So, how do we do this? The first thing is to pay attention to the physical heart, because that's where we can discover this constriction. As I said earlier, the physical heart is often a barometer for a great range of our feelings, but particularly the ones related to love and longing and stuff like that. We know this from expressions in our language. When something good happens, our hearts leap for joy. When we get angry, sometimes our hearts are turned to stone. Compassion softens our hearts. Tragedy breaks our hearts. So it's just reflected right in our language, this connection between the physical heart and the emotional heart, as we call it in bhakti terms. So when we suppress, there is this kind of constriction right there, and we can feel it if we pay attention. 
So the first thing we always have to do, whether you're a bhakti or a jnani or whatever, you have to become aware of what is going on. So then, how do we overcome it? That's the big question for a bhakti. And the most universal way recommended in the great traditions is through verbal prayer, the first and most primitive kind of prayer. It's a prayer that bhaktis, beginning on a path, share with exoteric, ordinary believers and aren't ashamed to either. Here's how Theophane the Recluse describes it. To raise up the mind towards the Lord and to say with contrition, Lord, have mercy. Lord, grant thy blessing. Lord, help. This is to cry out in prayer to God. And I might add, it's probably the most ancient practice known to humanity. If you know anything about vision quests, particularly Native American vision quests, the whole essence of the vision quest is to go off and cry for a vision. Go off to the forest, go off to the mountaintop, the lake, leave everything behind and focus completely on the divine, some form of the divine. There's an unbroken thread coming down to Theophane, I think lived in the 19th century. Unbroken thread of this simple but tremendously powerful practice if we can actually do it wholeheartedly with whole-souled devotion, as Narada said. And the truth of the matter is that a lot of sophisticated people today, us moderns, have great difficulty with this. We're very embarrassed to do anything like this. So if this is true of you, you might take the advice of the Hasidic master, Naman of Bratzloff. And here's what he said. Even if it happens to be the case that he finds himself incapable of opening his mouth to speak to God at all. Yet this is good in itself, namely the very preparation in which he makes himself ready to speak to God. And he can make up a prayer and carry on a conversation with himself regarding this very thing. Regarding this very thing, he should cry out in prayer that he has become so remote from God that he finds himself unable even to speak to him. And he should entreat God and beg for him to open his mouth so that he can converse with him. So if you are embarrassed by this practice, if all these uh, defense mechanisms arise against this, well, that's where you can start. That's what you can engage in verbal prayer about, is what he's saying. So we are going to spend the afternoon practicing this solo. One of the uh, earlier recommendations of Naman of Bratzloff is that to do this kind of prayer, you should go off to your field, uh, pick some time of the day where you can be alone and go off to your field, or go into a room in your house where you're alone and and you do this. Uh, Most of us don't have fields they go off to, but perhaps you can find some secluded, isolated spot on the property or go for a walk or go into your room. And, you know, you'll find some place where you can try this practice. I will give you a warning that for a lot of you anyway, 
your mind is immediately going to try to dissuade you. And it's going to say things like, this is stupid. You don't even believe in God. What are you doing this for? Why did you come on this retreat anyway? This is ridiculous. You should go back and do your inquiry. Don't listen to it. That mind is desperate. That mind knows it's doomed. And that's why it's saying all those things. If your mind does cook up a lot of doubt, don't let it dissuade you, but also don't get into a theological argument. Don't then start thinking, well, maybe there is a God. Well, no, I don't really believe in a God. Da, 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 da. Because it's not a question about being convinced of anything through a logic. It's a question of experience here. Bhaktis aren't interested in theology, and they're not interested in the logic of it. That's not the primary thing anyway. It's the experience. It's the initiation. And as we said before, it's not something you can manufacture, and your mind can't manufacture it for you. But what you can do is open yourself to it. And then see what happens. That's as far as you can go. So don't worry about all that. Is there a God? Isn't there a God? And whatnot. You're either going to have an experience, an initiation, or not. So don't worry about any of the intellectual part. It just is totally irrelevant. Just continue with the practice and see what happens. You can keep your attention focused on the physical heart just to, you know, keep your mind free of distractions as much as possible. But gently, this isn't a concentration practice, just keep it resting on the physical heart. That's where you'll feel the first stirrings of a hardened heart cracking open a little bit. You'll feel the first stirrings of that old longing again. And then try to give those feelings you have expression, verbal expression. You don't necessarily have to speak out. I mean, if you are someplace off in the woods and you're daring enough, that's actually even better. But it's fine if it's just in your mind. And see how deeply you can go with that. And you know when it's genuine, in a certain sense, when you're not making it up anymore. Do you know what I mean? When there's a flow. When it's not... Contrived. You may have to start with something a little contrived. One of the way writers get over writer's block is they sit down at the typewriter and they just start writing anything. It doesn't matter. But then a certain flow kicks in. And the same with this kind of verbal prayer, which is the first stage of prayer. Okay? So, we're going to do one round sitting here together of prep, like uh, Naman said. We're going to prepare ourselves to speak to God just by becoming quiet. And then when I ring the bell twice after the session, we'll quietly leave and we'll go our way. And then we'll try this practice. Okay?
You've now reached the end of this talk. Continue practicing at least once a day until you're thoroughly familiar with these instructions. Then continue with the next talk for more teachings and practices.